Hello, this is TREP Wire Week in Review for April 3rd. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. And with me is our own Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. Another week of tough news. Three quarters of all people in America are under some form of stay-at-home order, and containment measures are now extended to the end of April. Weekly unemployment numbers came in at 6.6 million. Remember, we had 3.8 million last week, and this, as a growing number of firms, announced furloughs and unpaid leave for employees. Now that the $2 trillion stimulus bill, known as the CARES Act, has passed, how does that impact the market, Nana? Well, I think it was a short-term boost in the arm, but nothing more, sadly. I think that the passing of that uh, $2 trillion bill gave people the sense that there's going to be a check coming that will allow them to buy food, um, medicine, uh, other essentials. But I don't think that it lasts very long, and it certainly is not going to things like rent or mortgage payments. I think that if you have a small nest egg, if you're a millennial, or even if you're you know, a junior executive somewhere with a small nest egg, you're saying liquidity is everything. If I'm getting a check for 1200 bucks, is going right into my checking account, that's three or four or five more visits to Walmart for food. I'm not using that for rent or for my mortgage payment. And so I think that while it did give the markets a bit of a boost, and that boost came across several parts of the economy, I, I think the feeling will be very short-lived. Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I was, I was actually talking to a good buddy of mine uh, last night, and he was talking, he's, you know, in a small business, and he was talking about the small business lending portion of the stimulus bill. And, you know, I think what they've done has the right intentions and the right motivations. And the Stimulus bill uh, paired with, you know, Jerome Powell at the Fed basically pulling out his bazooka. Uh, I think they're doing as the best that they possibly can, but nothing is nothing can help the fact that we have seen a drop in demand by God knows what percentage, right? Is it a 50% drop in demand or a 75% drop in demand? We'll only know in a couple of months when we look back on the data. Um, so, you know, I, they're doing what they can, uh, but I, I'm not sure if it's going to work. You know, I think a couple things to mention just to throw out there, you know, Kref C sent around a quick synopsis of uh, the bill and how it affects commercial real estate. And there were a bunch of different things, but, you know, reestablishing TALF um, and funding that was a big part of it. Uh, and, you know, moving back something like Cecil, which is kind of the small, funny pocket of the market um, and accounting standard. But there's there's just a lot of these little things that are are being applied that we're not really going to know the, the ramifications of for a while. And the other thing I would say about the stimulus is there's one problem we're facing right now and one problem we're trying not to face. The problem we're facing, of course, is the virus, which is spreading, you know, from city to city and, and the human costs are real and the impact on our healthcare workers and our first responders is enormous. The problem we're trying to avoid is the panic, right? The thing, the, the cities where people think that food is running out, that they have to start hoarding food, that they're running out of money, 
And I think that that stimulus bill went a long way towards keeping the lid on panic because we can fight one problem right now. We could fight the COVID. It would be really hard to fight two. Um, one other note on that unemployment number, you know, the, the first time jobless claims, the anticipated number was 3 million this week, which would have been about the same as last week. It came in at 6 million, double the number, which means almost 10 million over the last two weeks, which is almost half of the number of jobs we created uh, since the last downturn. And after that number came out, the 6 million stocks rallied. So what in Sam Hill was the whisper number? For goodness sake, were people expecting 8 million or 10 million? For 6 million to come in and, that, and the markets to rally is just kind of unbelievable. Looking at CMBS, how has this impacted what you're seeing in CMBS right now, Mayor? Well, CMBS really paralleled what the equity markets were doing in terms of performance in the secondary market. So we saw a huge sell-off in the first half of March, which took the Dow down about 35%. It subsequently bounced back uh, about 4,000 points, which took losses at one point to be as little as about 23%, um, 23% being relatively little. CMBS saw a, a similar wave. We saw AAA spreads start the year in the 90 above the curve type range for 10-year AAA. That blew out to maybe 350 basis points above the curve at the at the worst point, the worst part of the panic in, in late March. And once the stimulus came, we saw a really nice tightening among AAAs. So we saw those go from 350 over the curve to maybe 225. It was a nice snapback rally. But I do think, as with the equity markets, um, we may find that to be a false start. Starting this month, when the data starts rolling in, when we start showing delinquency numbers and special servicing numbers, I think we'll start to see those tick upwards, and that may force us to retest some of those lines. Yeah, I don't. I think we did a search, right? We did not see any mention of Corona or COVID in watch list comments from February, right? I don't we think did we not did. see any in February yeah. um, or March uh, in, in those comments. We would start to see them, I would expect, in April once those remittance uh, remarks start to come in. Yeah. you got to think it's, it's going to go from zero to a, to a pretty high number pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the worst historical number we saw in terms of delinquencies was north of 10%. Um, after the finan great financial crisis was well into swing. So it was probably like a 2009 number. I think we were at 10.34% uh, delinquency among commercial mortgages back in CMBS. Uh, it's really hard to predict where we go, but I don't think anybody would be shocked if we blow past that number over the next three months. So we Yeah, uh, I think... Uh, go ahead, Joe. Sorry, Martha. I think, you know, we, we published a few reports recently um, about potential default rates by property type and region and things like that. I think, you know, the hard, we, have a, we have a pretty good model and we have uh, very good data. The hardest part is figuring out what the heck is the macro scenario that you should be using when you're forecasting any of these things, you know, and we have clients and prospects right now calling us up and asking us, how do I, how do I drop all the retail uh, and lodging properties by 50% in value over the next three months, you know, and you've almost never seen somebody trying to do that in our system, you know, and, 
we've probably gotten 30 to 40 client calls and emails over the past week or two just asking, hey, I have to do Cecil or I have to do my stress test, my, my quarterly. I have to do what I normally do every quarter. And now it's totally turned upside down because for eight years, I've been using a baseline scenario, which was benign growth. And I could just select that scenario and go and I would get all my results. And now, you know, even the severely adverse out of the Federal Reserve might not be right, you know. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, uncertainty around those scenarios that we're that you know we're hearing, and I think I don't know if it's complacency, but there's definitely been some uh, comfort for many years now in saying you know things are going to be fine, and and I can do my normal work and move on. And now it's like everyone's reassessing all of that stuff that was taken for granted for a while. Yeah, part of the problem is you don't get the great benefit of diversity right now uh, across asset types or across um, geographies because this is spreading so quickly. But if you look at, you know, two of our previous terrible crises that we faced, each one of those impacted small parts of the market. So if you talk about 9-11 and you talk about airline travel and you talk about um, destination theme parks and so forth, yes, maybe you had a big downtick in people going to Orlando or New Orleans during that time, but it wasn't zero because people could still get in their car and say, I don't want to get in my car and fly from Dallas to Orlando, but I'm willing to drive my family there. That's still safe. So there was still this reservoir of, of demand. Like you said before, Joe, demand you know has really gone to zero. Back then, you didn't have that zero reservoir of demand. Same thing in the great financial crisis. That hit two ends of the market, right? It hit the, the Wall Street side of the market, and it hit the subprime borrower very, very hard. But for people that were established, that had long-term jobs, that had nest eggs, they were still going to restaurants. They were still going on vacations. They were still buying things, appliances, and so forth. Right now, there's no point in the in the economy that you could point to and say, other than perhaps you know grocery stores and maybe medical supply guys, that you could say, these are the guys that are you know going to come out of this hole. Right? This is a deeper problem than we faced in either in, in either of our last two crises. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned 9/11. I was actually, you know, talking about that a couple of days ago, and it's a, it's it's hard to compare anything to that, right? Especially as New Yorkers. Um, but there is a definite, uh, there's a similar vibe, you know, post Corona and post 9/11. Other than the six feet apart part of it, I feel like when I've been out in the world, there is a definite feeling of, hey, we're in this together be safe out there, you know, do you need any help? Let us know, if, you know, I can bring you anything or, or that type of thing. And, you know, on a somewhat lighter note, uh, I've never known that so many companies cared about me because if you looked at my Gmail inbox right now, I think I've had about every email list I've ever been on, that company is there for me. You know, <laughs> and I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but, you know, it's it's wild to think that, you know, golf now has to send me something about coronavirus or, you know, some some service or industry that you would never think of, they have to respond to this. You know, it's just so ridiculously widespread. It's funny. I find two things coming through my email box relentlessly without interruption. One is political fundraisers 
and the other is a guy who wants to fix my IT problem. And it's not just one guy. It's about a thousand guys. <laughs> just never turn off those automatic uh, email sends. It's relentless. Just trying to stay relevant. Uh, one of the That's things right. that we've had a, a flurry of inbound questions about is uh, CMBX. Manus, give us a quick explanation of, of what that's about. Well, CMBX in general is a derivative, right? Just like in the equity markets or in other markets, you can bet on volatility or you can bet on stock futures or oil futures or other things without actually owning the physical entity. Um, the same is true in commercial real estate that you can buy, meaning go long commercial real estate by buying CMBX, uh, or you can go short by shorting CMBX, uh, that really involves buying and selling protection, buying and selling insurance. Uh, you could do the same thing for corporate entities and even the U.S. government, um, for that matter. What makes CMBX, and, and for that matter, for CMBX, uh, there are many different series, and you could buy or sell protection up and down the credit curve, AAA down to uh, B. What makes the CMBX 6 B minus so interesting for investors and hedge fund speculators is that particular sub-index is heavily weighted with shopping malls, shopping mall loans, which um, many people for a long time have felt very bearish about uh, retail in general, and now it is bearishness on steroids. One of the big shorts uh, for the last couple of months has been Carl Icahn, who touted his short on CNBC about two weeks ago he has a $5 billion short, which uh, has really been profitable, extraordinarily profitable for him since COVID began. Uh, I'm sure he didn't go into this trade last fall um, with COVID in mind. This is amazing serendipity for him. Um, but it does put people really focusing on this trade very heavily to determine, for those that believe that we will come out of this hole, it's an opportunity to get exposure to commercial real estate with mid to high teens uh, returns, premiums, if you will, if that's the way you feel the market will go. On the other side, if you think that retail, only half of the story has been told and defaults will be enormous, you can take the other side, short it, and um, be the guy that they, uh, you know, have in Hollywood for the second big short. Right, maybe Brad Pitt or Steve Carell or Christian Bale will uh, will play you in in the next rendition. I think it'll be David Spade for you, Manus. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted um, uh, the guy from the, the sidekick from uh, A Star Is Born, Sam. Uh, I forget oh, his name. Oh yeah, the Marlboro Man. The Marlboro uh, Man. Yeah. So I was on the CMBX thing. Uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind for when we make the movie about you. Uh, you know, two things on the CMBX side. I feel bad for, I forget the guy's name. It might have been something Yip um, that came out in about 2016, who was all over the Wall Street Journal shorting CMBX 6 because all these mall loans were in there and he thought they were all going to die and, and have losses. And he exited the position, I think it was in 2019, I saw an article about it. they've been paying premiums for the protection all these years, and it's just the losses did not materialize in time to make money, and he got out. And he's just probably, he's got to be kicking himself now. Uh, I feel bad for that I guy. think the irony is, 
I believe I've heard that he's working for Icon. So he tried to recreate the magic for Icon. So maybe it's all going to come back in a virtuous circle for him. It all worked out. In the, the other thing, too, is, you know, for four or five years, people have been looking at, let's find the basket of securities and the vintages that are most exposed to retail and not necessarily just retail, but large enclosed malls. Because those are the, that's kind of the thesis is that those are going down the tubes. Um, I wonder if there are people out there right now searching through CMBX indices for the biggest lodging exposure, right? Because that's retail is, is a slow, slow leak, right? The, there are long-term leases in place and tenants go bankrupt, you know, not all at the same time. Whereas lodging, it's one night leases basically. So overnight you went from 75% occupied to 0% occupied for maybe the next three or four months. So, you know, we'll see, maybe that's a play there. Yeah, I think part of the problem is you don't snap back very fast. You know, let's suppose, I'm making up this number, but let's suppose there were a million commuters coming into Manhattan every day on mass transit. And then two days later, there's zero commuters coming in to Manhattan on mass transit. I don't think the day people open things up, you're going back to a million again. I think you're going right. back to 50,000 and 100,000 and 150,000. I think that ramp up could be as long as the process is that we're out for. So um, the hope for a big snapback from malls, hotels, movie theaters, even barbershops, for God's sakes, you know, that could take a long time. Looking, uh, looking at this past week, April 1 marked the first day most businesses had to pay rent since this all started. How long until the financials give us a better assessment of this downturn, Manus? Well, it's interesting that you asked. I may have mentioned this last week on our podcast. I, I don't remember. And if I did, I apologize for the repetitiveness. But during the great financial crisis in 2008, certain parts of the market, guys that really knew the market, knew that the subprime issue was going to rear its ugly head and was going to be a real painful twist. And we were at a conference then in January or February and there were a number of securitization guys there that played in the subprime space. And everybody was waiting for their BlackBerry to light up to find out from their analysts just how much subprime delinquencies had upticked in that day's remittance reports. And once it came in, the room started to bust, right? Delinquencies jumped from 3% last month to 8% this month, right? What you have right now is everybody waiting for that next wave of remittances to come in, you know, which will be mid-April, where people will say, how many guys are now on watch list? How many guys missed their payment? How many are with special services? How many guys have indicated a willingness to throw back the keys or requested an extension or a forbearance? And I don't think all of the clues will be out there in mid-April, but you will start getting a sense of how deep this is going to run. And I think it'll be just like 2008 all over again, where people will be clamoring for signs of just how uh, deep this problem is running. Yeah, we're a uh, question that's been asked a bunch uh, over the last week, and we've been kind of looking into it is on the agency side, where um, the stimulus bill actually prescribed 
a moratorium on evictions for 120 days if you take a forbearance, which is 90 days long. Um, we're actually trying to figure out how Fannie, if at all, how they're going to report this, because, you know, in the end, Fannie is on the hook to pay any particular losses. So historically, they haven't reported much in terms of delinquency. So it'll be interesting to see if there is a forbearance on a multifamily loan for 90 days, you know, the servicer and Fannie, I mean, it's really the servicer is on the hook to continue uh, advancing those payments. I wonder if there's going to be any way to track this, you know, in the data. I think that's honestly, I think that's TBD right now, uh, as is, you know, the implementation of all of this stuff. You know, I was on the phone with a friend, another friend of mine who's a CPA and he was saying it's it's the middle of tax season, and I now have to read an 850-page law to figure out how I should be uh, advising my clients. You know, and every single line in that law probably has five different interpretations, and you know, all these different things. So I guess I, I wanted to actually ask you a question, man. Speaking of the new law, you know, there's been talk about trying to convince the Fed to include non-agency CMBS in their new round of TALF. Can you, like, I know you've told me stories about TALF over the years, but can you just give like a quick overview of what the heck TALF is and, and why maybe non-agency CMBS in there would be good? Well, essentially back in 2008, 2009, the markets were locked, right? Values were plummeting on securitizations, you know, bonds, tranches of all stripes. Um, nobody would take them on. Banks wouldn't buy them from their clients. There was no liquidity. People couldn't raise cash by selling these because either they couldn't sell them at all or they would sell them at such distressed prices that, um, you know, they would be taking big, big losses on these. Some of these were coming at times where margin calls were being made. So people were selling into a weak market at margin call times, which kind of beget more margin calls. And, and and there was just kind of a downward cycle. And, and the Fed stepped in, the New York Fed in particular, was really spearheading this role. And, and TREP was actually brought in to administer the commercial real estate side of this, where banks could pledge securities to the Fed uh, for cash. So it opened up the market to allow banks to buy uh, bonds from there. Uh, clients that were looking to sell at um, at prices that weren't bargain basement. It led to a an immediate spread tightening, so values firmed up. Um, people got comfortable again buying CBS, knowing that they could sell it again. And so, generally speaking, it helped a, a enormous recovery in spreads. Spread tightening came in um, by a large margin, and I think that would help again here, right? We've seen some really meaningful spread widening and it would be great if the um, the Fed took this on. I think that it would prevent the cost of borrowing or the cost of refinancing from exploding upward. Um, but it, it, it will not be the panacea it was 10 years ago because while it may save a performing property like an office 100 basis points in spread, that's a wonderful thing. If nobody is lending on a hotel or a retail property, 100 basis points means nothing if you can't get any financing at all. So it will help. I encourage it. I hope the uh, regulators go forward with this, but I don't think it will have the same impact in the short term that it did 10 years ago. 
Yeah, he brings up another point. I've been seeing communications from Fannie and Freddie and from Fannie and Freddie lenders about um, their new rules on new lending. So, you know, I've, I've read them quickly, but the general gist is uh, that for specific types of loans, they're asking for 12 months of debt service reserves, or they're asking for nine months, or they're asking for uh, higher debt service coverage ratio levels and things like that. So it's, it's kind of, I mean, it makes sense, right? We're in a riskier time. If you are just a, a regular old private balance sheet lender, you might think I, I need to be more uh, conservative in my underwriting here. But when Fannie and Freddie's you know, mission is to provide liquidity to the single family and multifamily market, it's just interesting that all of this work is happening on the fiscal and monetary side to keep the markets flowing. But there is still this uh, tightening, uh, you know, on the ground from the originators. Yeah, hard to hard to see how that works out for them, but they may have to back that off, but only time will tell. And it's looking uh, back at commercial real estate, you mentioned uh, the obvious industries that would hit hard, hospitality, retail, um, and some others. Where is the hidden risk in CRE right now? Well, I mean, I think people think that you're in a better position now in offices and industrial and warehouses and so forth. And, and the truth is you are, right? You don't have the immediate fall off in occupancy that you have in a hotel or the shuttering that you have in retail. Um, you know, I, I think office remains a very um, misunderstood risk right now, or maybe underreported risk might be a better word for it. In the past, you know, you had a couple of concerns, right? You had occupancy and you had overbuilding, and maybe if you had a weak credit tenant, maybe that was a problem too. But weak credit tenants were, were kind of few and far between as the economy has surged in the last five years. Now you have three different problems, right? You have, number one, is my tenant viable, right? If, if you have an oil tenant right now taking up 300,000 square feet with 18 or $20 oil, you're thinking, I hope this guy doesn't go belly up. I hope this guy doesn't go Chapter 11, right? We saw the first one yesterday with Whitting Petroleum going Chapter 11, right? They're a shale, shale driller, right? I mean, they have offices in various places, right? They're somebody's tenant. And if that extends to Anadarko or Occidental or others, you know, that's a real issue. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is if you have near-term leases coming due, and there are, you know, tons of buildings that have 100 or 200,000 square feet coming due, um, you know, over the next year, what are guys going to be retaking for this? Are they going to, you know, reduce their footprint by 20%, 40%, 60%? And instead of $75 a square foot in New York, are they asking for 55 right? So it, it's very uncertain in, in that regard. And then some of the big drivers in, in recent years have been, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, of, of office space. So they all just tap the brakes and say, no more big leases anywhere in Austin, you know, Palo Alto, New York, Chicago, until we see how this plays out. It's very, very hard to know how this turns, you know, given the uncertainty. Yeah. Nah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, the, those are all the, the very large themes. And then I'm thinking of the, the simplest, dumbest thing, which is there aren't any brokers 
walking people around empty office spaces right now, right? Just like there aren't any brokers walking people around houses for sale or anything else. So even if you forgot all of those very big problems, there's going to be three months of a pause in activity, right? So even if you had a, a, a good space for lease and you had good momentum and you had a, you know, good demand, you may not get that leased up for another six months or a year, as opposed to you would have gotten it leased up right away. I think if you're a bank and you knew you had a, a big lease coming due in 18 months and you were working on this, you know, thinking about 150,000 square feet, 200,000 square feet, and you were in charge of this, I'd be shocked if your boss hasn't called you by now and said, you are not permitted to sign anything, not a letter of intent, not, not uh, an agreement, not an exclusive, nothing until we figure out where this goes. Right. Okay, looking uh, quickly at CLOs, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't address what we've reported on this past week. The loan price plummet for a number of industries worldwide. What should we be watching for there, Manny? Well, I, I think it's been a really painful time for managers in this space. You know, some have tried to catch a, a falling knife um, buy stuff on the downspin only to find it fall further. So, and, and some of these managers have maybe 20 or 25% spread across, let's say, airlines, oil and gas, hotel and casinos, casual dining, um, other things like that. So when you add up all of their exposures, maybe 25% of their holdings, you know, spread across industries that are really, really hard hit. One thing that we're going to report on tomorrow, you know, maybe you saw in the Wall Street Journal, um, AMC Movies has brought in a restructuring advisor now to figure out what to do next. They have a $2 billion leveraged loan. This thing was changing hands, um, 97, 98 early in the year. It fell down to a handle of 88 to 90. A bunch of managers came in late February, early March, but, you know, by our data, bought sizable positions in this. And now it's being, you know, quoted more like a 60, 65 thing, and it may have more room to fall. So um, if you're a manager, you were, you were sitting real pretty in December and January. Um, your, your credits were few and far between, and now you have more problems than you ever imagined. Yeah, it's uh, that falling nice analogy reminds me a lot of my uh, personal brokerage account. <laughs> I thought I was buying in it. I thought I was buying it at a discount three weeks ago. I stopped wow. looking. I'm just watching uh, sports <laughs> reruns right now. Yeah, don't look. <laughs> well, uh, bringing it back home, TREP employees are working remotely and have been since March 9th. Assuming we're a barometer for other businesses, how soon do you estimate we're back in the office? Joe? Oh, man. Uh, we were talking about this uh, two weeks ago, and we were saying, you know what, the over-under is, maybe June 1 or June 10th. And two weeks later, I'm thinking there's no chance that people are back in the office in June, um, you know, unless something really reverses itself. But I, I can't even, you know, Vegas is not even taking odds on this right now, I don't think. Um, speaking of which, I feel really bad for the bookies out there. No sports, they're not making any money. Anyway, I digress. But I would say like, you know, September almost is my new baseline for, when I expect to get back on the train. Yeah. I am a huge believer in American ingenuity. You know, I, I talked about this with some guys the other day, and I'm going to really digress for a minute, but 
when I'm not uh, watching CNBC. I've been watching some old Lakers-Celtic games from the 1980s. Larry Bird and Kevin McHale, Magic Johnson. It's been wonderful. And they were talking about in 1984, Cedric Maxwell, who was a bit player on that team, in Game 7 came up and said, get on my back, Larry Bird. I'm taking you to the promised land. And he did. And he was a bit player. And in my American spirit says there's some kid in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now working in a lab who's pouring together two beakers, who's looking for that, you know, antiviral serum, and he's going to come up with it. And we're going to have something which tests for antibodies and serves as a vaccine. It's going to be a kid with some moxie in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> and we're back to work before 4th of July. Let's hope. Let's hope. With that, we'll close today. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. In the meantime, for more information and other recordings of TREP podcasts, please visit www.trep.com or subscribe to TREP Talk. Thank you all and stay well.